Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Will Fenton, Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company of Philadelphia. This is my home. Um, it's one of those weird things that um, we're trying out right now, which is a sort of webinar style of one of the book talks that you're accustomed to um, attending in our lovely reading room or Logan room. Um, the only thing that I've managed to reproduce to, to give some sort of uh, gesture towards the form that we're working with is that I've got this little a uh, digital copy of a fireplace roaring beside me on an iPad. I encourage you to sit a spell by the hearth uh, and grab yourself a beverage and make yourself comfortable for this Thursday evening activity. Um, so this is our first, our very first of a new thing that we're doing, which is called Fireside Chats. Um, what is a Fireside Chat? Well, for those of you who are uh, historic, you know, historians or versed in even 20th century uh, you know, uh, background, you know that FDR uh, during the Great Depression did a weekly broadcast on the radio. That was his technology of the day. Well, today we have Zoom. It's a little different, but it has its own affordances, uh, namely that we get to see our speaker, Aaron, here in his own home office, and we uh, get to be together in that own way. Um, these firesides are going to be weekly. We're going to do them throughout the summer. We have a schedule booked up all the way through August, and I have every intention of continuing that as long as um, our fellowship network will help us sustain it, because this is a project that is very much indebted to our current and former fellows who have volunteered to participate in all of these sessions, to share their research in these weekly chats. Each one will have a theme or a topic that um, aligns with someone's research interests, I have challenged everyone to try to keep their uh, spiel to about a half an hour to allow us time for engagement, question and answer. Um, how do you pose a question? Great question. At the bottom of your screen, you'll see a button that says Q&A. That is a great place for you to type in a question and you can type it at any point. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna plan on moderating some of those questions towards the end of our fireside chat today with Aaron. So whenever you, you know, hear something that you're interested in, you want to hear more about, take a moment to write a sentence there and we will do our very best to address it. If not, you're going to be stuck with my silly questions, which isn't good for anybody. Um, so with that said, we have a very special guest today. Um, his name is Aaron Spencer Fogelman. He is a distinguished professor of history um, at, the, at Northeastern Illinois University. His research and teaching interests include forced and free transatlantic migration, Revolution, Slavery, Religion, and Gender in the Atlantic World in Early America. He previously taught at the University of South, South Alabama and has been a Guggenheim Fellow, a Distinguished Fulbright Chair at the Goethe University in Frankfurt, an Alexander von Humboldt Fellow at the Max Planck Institute, a McNeil Center Fellow, and of course, most importantly, a Library Company Fellow. In fact, you were a Fellow, if I remember correctly, Aaron, I wasn't here at the time, but in 1988, is that right? That sounds right, yes. So that, that would have been our sophomore class of fellows. We started the program in 87. So you've been here almost from the beginning and um, I'm delighted to welcome you back for uh, your um, uh, fireside chat today about something that you're uh, co-editing called A Catalog of Published Narratives by Africans Enslaved in the Transatlantic Slave Trade, 1586, to 1936. So with that, I'm gonna make myself invisible for a moment, and I'm gonna turn this over to Aaron, who is going to lead us on this journey. Thank you, Aaron.
Okay, thank you, Will. And um, I can't see you, but I see the numbers. And Will says there's a large number of you have registered. I'm I'm very happy to be doing this, and I will talk for a few minutes and be happy to answer your questions afterwards. And I'm I'm going to do my best with the technology here, starting with let's see a PowerPoint slide. Okay, I've I've never tried to follow in the footsteps of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and I guess some way that's what I'm trying to do now. So to get us in the mood, I have a picture of a fireside there, but also uh, my 1936 RCA radio, which I found in a barn in Alabama 20 years ago and restored. So this is what you would have been listening to while FDR was talking. And uh, this is the name of the project. Uh, there's uh, me and my co-editor, uh, Keith Arbor, there. And um, what I wanted to talk about is, is this project, which is about transatlantic slavery from the perspectives of those who were forced to endure it. Um, most of us are familiar with images uh, of, a, of the slave ship, the auction block somewhere in the Americas, and at least something vague regarding the African background and heritage of so many people who endured this. But this is not enough. Uh, we need to know more about the lives of people born in freedom in Africa the middle of passage they endured, new world slavery, and perhaps emancipation. This was the largest forced transoceanic trans migration in history, about 12 and a half million people. It had a dramatic impact on all four Atlantic continents. But we don't know enough about what happened from the perspective of those who endured it. So with the exception of a few specialists, um, most people think that there are fewer than 10 to 20 published narratives by people born in Africa. And, and they tend to think that they're all in English. Now, we're, we're not talking about Frederick Douglass or Sojourner Truth or other people who published slave narratives long ago that you might know about. Those were people born into slavery in the Americas. Uh, we're working with people who were born in Africa almost always in freedom, and then were enslaved and transported to the Americas. We have found more than 400 published African narratives throughout the Atlantic world in numerous languages. Um, and I'm gonna start a PowerPoint now, uh, a slideshow actually, just to, uh, it'll be running throughout my talk and uh, there are going to be some images of uh, a few of the African narrators. Let me get it started here. Okay. All right. So we'll be, I'll be talking about some of these individuals, not all of them. Um, but I just wanted you to get a little bit of a feel for some of the documents and, and images of people that, uh, are in our project. So what, what I'm working on is, is part of a, a monograph on four centuries of forced and free transatlantic migrations. It's entitled Immigrant Voices. 
but the quantity and quality of the African narratives was so impressive that I felt compelled to start a project to catalog all of these African voices so that scholars and teachers and students might use them in their own work. And hang on, this PowerPoint is just not working. And I'm not sure why. That's better. Okay. So here they come. Um, so in recent years, there's been an increased interest in using individual biography to study Africans and slavery. And this project contributes to that trend. Um, it's uh, of these uh, recent projects, the largest and most ambitious is led by Paul Lovejoy at York University in Toronto. It's called Freedom Narratives. And they're collecting data on many thousands of people enslaved in Africa. And Lovejoy has been helpful, very helpful to us in our project. In fact, a number of people have been helping me in the past three years. It's a, been a kind of a shifting team of graduate students and senior scholars. Uh, most importantly is Keith Arbor, who's the co-editor. He's an historian and bibliographer in Cambridge, Mass. Our plan is to um, publish the catalog in cloth. And uh, I'll, I'll show you examples of entries of it later. But uh, it, will, it will have bibliographic entries for, for all 400 plus of these individuals, but also URLs and QR codes so that you can use your uh, cell phone to uh, access the full text of each narrative. Later, we're going to digitize this project and uh, we hope to have free online access for all of these entries. There'll be a search function um, and everyone will have access to the full text of all the narratives, as well as maps, images, and we want to interface with a number of related online projects about Africa and transatlantic slavery. Okay, now I want to switch to show you uh, an image of the actual catalog. How critical to understanding what this is all about and why it's important is, is our criteria. What do you have to do to, uh, what has to happen in order for some narrative to be included in our uh, catalog? And it's very complicated and the boundaries are blurry often. So I'm just gonna give you uh, the simple view uh, on uh, three points, three important criteria. And this is also what distinguishes our project from other projects involving biography. The first is that to be included in our catalog, um, the, the individual who provided the narrative needed to have been born in Africa. So people born into slavery in the Americas are excluded. And the purpose of this is to emphasize the African presence in transatlantic slavery in the Americas. And this is something that, in my view, that Americanists do not stress enough. The second criteria for inclusion is that the individual must have been included in the transatlantic slave trade. This means that many, many thousands of people, tens of thousands of people or more, who were enslaved within Africa 
but never left Africa are excluded. And the purpose of this is to emphasize the importance of transatlantic slavery throughout the Atlantic world. And then the third important criteria for inclusion is that the, the individual who uh, produced this narrative um, uh, or the narrative itself must have been somehow published. There needs to be a distinguishable African voice in the publication and um, but it has to be published. Now, many of them, most of them, in fact, were published during the times of slavery, um, not too long after the narrative was uh, recorded. But uh, many of them were published much later, especially scholarly editions from the late 20th and 21st centuries. But if it's published, then it goes into our catalog. And uh, the purpose for this is to emphasize that the African voices are there. They're more than people realize. They're quite revealing and you can obtain them. This, this is very doable. So those are the criteria. Um, currently we have 405 discrete narratives in the catalog and nearly 2000 printings. There will be more printings. Uh, so every time uh, a narrative is published from 200 years ago until today, uh, it gets an entry in our catalog. Um, okay, so um, in each catalog, we scroll down to the beginning, a little front matter there that will be expanded. That's, that's the first entry, um, but we provide um, a bibliographic uh, list of all printings for each narrative up to the present. Many of these 405 narratives are quite short. In some cases, they're only one or two sentences, but, but even those are quite revealing and others are two or 300 pages long. Uh, taken together, they provide massive detail on village life in Africa, circumstances of enslavement, the Middle Passage, enslaved life in the Americas, often uh, emancipation and life after emancipation in the Americas. Now, my co-editor, uh, Keith Arbor, has written uh, a couple of paragraphs that I, I think express nicely what we mean by the concept of narrative and some of the issues there, because this, this can get tricky. So I'm just gonna read a couple of paragraphs that he wrote because he expressed it in writing much better than I could. Uh, um, verbally. So, this catalog attempts to lay the groundwork for the study of what African-born women and men enslaved in the transatlantic trade said and wrote about their experiences before, during, and after enslavement, and how they said and wrote it. The catalog also attempts to lay the groundwork for the study of what other people, readers, um, could have learned from the imperfect publications of these African-born women's and men's words and when and where they could have learned it. Of these different studies, our attempts to determine what African-born women and men enslaved in the transatlantic trade said about their lives is the most difficult. For as this catalog shows, most of what these women and men said was in the first and most important instances imperfectly written down by European-born men. Some women too were uh, involved in this. 
Almost none of these European-born men were stenographers, nor were they all fine listeners. Some were reasonably astute, conscientious questioners. Others were nothing of the sort. In most cases, we do not and might never know what parts of their interlocutors' accounts they did not trouble to include when they wrote down their conversations. Nor do we yet sufficiently know what parts of what they did write down were omitted and when their manuscripts when their manuscripts were printed. Now, in my view, it's imperative to study large numbers of African voices to understand transatlantic slavery. And the catalog shows uh, that there was no one view of the Middle Passage. No one view suffices. There was an incredible diversity of experience. And all these cases are unique. So we must dispose with the notion that only a handful of narratives are available and all by men printed in the English language. Our catalog uh, is filled with narratives from women, men, and children taken throughout the Atlantic world. Uh, the stories are recorded in French, Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch, German, and other languages. Some were from learned Muslims who wrote in Arabic. Uh, genres and printed narratives include uh, works by abolitionists, religious works, poetry, uh, scientific works, especially in geography, linguistics, and anthropology, and others. The long printing histories of each entry show how much has been available over, over the course of centuries. Our project, especially the online version, will interface with many other projects involving biography and many other themes regarding the long history of Africa and transatlantic slavery. Our online version will include images of the narrators uh, and a PowerPoint show um, that uh, you saw a moment ago, and we'll come back to it as well. It's just a small sample of the images that we have. I think we have about anywhere from 100 to 150 uh, images of the 400 narrators. But we also had villages where they lived, houses, the ships they were on, and that sort of thing. Uh, um, images uh, directly relevant to their lives and experiences. Now, let me make a, a brief note on the library company holdings and how they're relevant here. Uh, in fact, the library company has a large number of these printings, and we will have an index that highlights them. So that will allow researchers to plan trips to the library company and quickly make the most of their time when they're there. And now I want to go over uh, some individual um, examples from the catalog, just a, a few highlights, special cases, just to give you a, a feel for who's in here and the diversity of uh, experience in individuals. The very first person in the catalog is, uh, you see him there now, uh, Entry 1.0, Alonzo de, de Ilesca from 1586. And what you see is uh, a bibliographic record of the manuscript there. In this case, the point zero indicates that um, it's a manuscript. And then a one paragraph biography. He uh, was a Maroon leader in Ecuador. And he met with Spanish officials and uh, Somebody recorded uh, his narrative about aspects of his life, and that was published actually in, in this century. It's a good example of how long it could take from the time it was uh, 
the narrative was produced until it was published. Uh, let me scroll, scroll through now to number 21. This narrative is from uh, a woman in Brazil and Portuguese is not one of my languages. My languages are German, Dutch, and French. So uh, forgive my pronunciation, but Rosa Egyptiaca. You see her dates there in parentheses. For now, we have women in the catalog highlighted in turquoise. That's going to change later. Um, and, and there is her short biography. She was sent to Brazil and, and was sold as a sex slave. Then she experienced a, a religious, a Christian conversion, but also a mystical conversion experiences and had visions and gathered quite a following and got into trouble uh, with the authorities about this and was uh, um, sent to the Inquisition in Lisbon. That's where her narrative was recorded. And, and in fact, she died in prison there. Now we're going to skip up to number 113. You see here um, all the numbers there. That's uh, number 110.10. That, that's the 10th printing of, of whatever 110 was. And this goes up to some of them are quite long. There's 60 or 70 printings of them. This one goes to 22 at least. The entire catalog is getting close to 600 pages now. Oh. Come on, 113, where are you? All right, 1779. This is a man named Nero Brewster. You can see his dates there. Uh, he was taken to the West Indies and then to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And he was manumitted there. And uh, it turns out there was a, a, a small community of Africans, people born in Africa, in Portsmouth, right around the time of the revolution. And um, he was elected king of it. This was, this was a tradition in, among Africans in some places in the Americas to form an African community of some sort, uh, and uh, they elected kings and queens. And he was the king in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, till he died in 1786. The next example is uh, Isaac Anderson, number 126. Here he is. This is a complicated entry. Um, this guy's story is just absolutely fascinating. He was born in Angola, taken on a slave ship to South Carolina in 1775 as the Revolutionary War began. He ran away to the British at Charleston. Uh, he was one of thousands of people who uh, took the British up on their offer if they were on a rebel plantation to, to be emancipated if they joined the British. Uh, and he ended up fighting with them after they lost the war. Um, 
let's see, he, he went to North Carolina with the British first and then New York City until the end of the war. And he and thousands of others evacuated uh, with the British fleet to Nova Scotia. He lived there until 1792. And then he sailed with a large fleet carrying uh, African and African-American refugees from Canada to the new British colony in Sierra Leone in West Africa. And he became a political leader and essentially a, a radical there. And in the, in the 1790s, he protested what he and others thought were tyrannical British policy in Sierra Leone, among other things. He and others protested against taxation without representation. So where do you think he got that idea? It just gives you an idea of how complicated and um, revolutions are. It's a fascinating example of that. But he died in Sierra Leone in 1800. The next example, number 204. Just about there. there here we go. Mohamedou Sisse. My apologies for the pronunciation there. Um, he was a, a learned Muslim born in a Mandinka village. You see the name there, Nyani Maru, on the northern bank of the Gambia River. He learned to read the Quran and wrote Arabic. Um, he was uh, captured in war, taken on a French slave ship uh, that was interrupted, at, intercepted at sea by the British, and then taken by the British to Antigua in the Caribbean. He was freed there and placed in the 3rd West Indian Regiment uh, and served as a grenadier with them from 1811 to 1812 in the West Indies. He was discharged in Trinidad in 1825. And he became essentially a, a Muslim religious leader in Trinidad and accumulated some money and began purchasing other Muslims that were being landed and sold from slave ships. They would purchase them and um, liberate them essentially. And he had a, a following there, a Muslim um, religious community in the 1820s and 30s and his narrative is from 1838. Let's do three more. Uh, go to 263. While I find it, try to imagine your worst image of what it was like on a slave ship. You've heard about it. Maybe you saw Spielberg's movie, I don't know, which is in some ways a pretty good representation of it. Uh, all of those horrors. Well, this fellow, William Thomas, born in 1808, number 263.1, had to experience this twice. He was from Cameroon, he was captured, he was placed on a Spanish slave ship. Um, it was in the 1830s, I believe, when a, a British patrol intercepted the Spanish slave ship, took them to Sierra Leone and liberated them. And seven years later, when he was on a fishing boat, he was captured again by a Spanish slave ship. And this time he didn't get away. 
He was taken across the Atlantic to Cuba and um, was on the sugar plantation uh, that escaped from there uh, to the British consul in Havana and made it back to England. So uh, that just baffles me to think that as, as someone had to experience this twice. But this is, this is what I mean when you when I say that if you begin looking at individual biographies and the narratives, you just see a tremendous diversity of experience. Okay, two more. Number 372 is Delore Real. her. Cuba. Here she is, born in about 1814. Uh, she was from Lagos, uh, what is now Nigeria, taken in 1834 on a Spanish slave ship to Cuba. Um, and uh, she became part of a network that was operating in Havana of, of women from roughly the same area or people in West Africa who would buy other women uh, from slave ships and employ them in their laundry there and work out a deal for them so that, that they could work their way into freedom. Uh, and this is what happened to Delore Real. And uh, she continued to make enough money after she purchased her own freedom to uh, sail on the Avon to England. And she was hoping to return to her family in Lagos after all of those years. And I'm not sure what happened to her. I don't know if she made it or not. Uh, the narrative, the documentation only follows her as far as uh, England. And then the final entry in the catalog is Sylvia King, who was interviewed by the WPA in the 1930s, part of that large uh, oral history project for former slaves in the United States. She's the only one of the thousands of people they interviewed that I could find that was uh, from Africa. You see her dates there. Uh, she was from Morocco and ended up in East Texas when she gave her narrative. So she's number 405 uh, on the last. Uh, her interview was in 1936. So let me just give you some final thoughts now, and then I'll, I'll take questions. Um, the diversity alone and the small number out of millions for 400 voices, that, that's more than 20 times what we thought, but it's still a small number co compared to the millions who actually experienced this. Um, but they testify to the terrible weight of silence and death in the slave system and the immense variety within it. The pleas in these narratives are proof of how native anger, ideologies, and situations combined in many to create informed fury at their situation. And they show how both Muslims and non-Muslims reacted to the terrible irony that those who held them captive were attached to various ideologies of freedom. There are great, they are a great and terrible resource, um, these narratives and also a powerful rejection of the universal slave owner defense that they had saved people from the horrors of Africa. They are also a powerful rejection 
the modern notion that we cannot better study African voices due to the dearth of sources, for in fact, the sources are there. So thank you very much, and I will be happy to answer your questions now. Thank you so much, Aaron. Um, do you mind um, unsharing your screen? Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. This is a great project. Um, and while I get a handle on the Q&A, and I already see that we have, I don't know, like half a dozen questions queued up for you, I want to ask you one just to sort of get us started. Um, logistically, this catalog, when it's made available in the digital edition, will there be uh, links to the open access materials? If somebody sees an entry that gets them really excited, they can follow it and read it? Yes. Okay. And until that becomes available, uh, are there any remarkable narratives that you encountered that you could tell us about that you know are available online so we can you know, start reading right now? Oh, um, there would be several. There are a number of biography projects um, and they're being digitized. Um, the Freedom Narratives Project that I mentioned has thousands of these. Now, most of those are going to be, the vast, the large majority of those are going to be people who were in Africa and never made it to the Americas. And in many cases, it's um, it's just data. It's not an, um, you can you can piece together a biography from it, but it's it's not an African voice telling their story. But in many cases, there is. Um, If you just if you just start googling people, you will find that uh, you will you begin to find some examples of this. Uh, and and freedom narratives is not it's not yet available. It's just it's still under construction. There, there's just kind of a skeleton out there. Uh, there are if you go to uh, slavevoyages.org, which is the transatlantic slave database. They have a lot of material about transatlantic slavery there, not just the database, but, but images and maps, and they might have some narratives there. Uh, there is a project, a Dictionary of African American Biography, I believe, Stephen Niven and Henry Louis Gates at Harvard are working on this, and uh, Quite a bit of that, I think, is available online now. But that's what you're going to have to do there is sort through all of the African American material they have to try to find Africans, and that's going to be one of the advantages of this. Is we will be the first project that focuses on Africans that experienced the Middle Passage and went to everywhere in the Americas. Well, that's 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 great, and. Um... All of those resources that you just mentioned, we can include in some notes uh, so that everybody who's participating here has something that they can pursue after this talk if they're interested. So I'd like to start working through the questions because you now have 10 questions that have been posed to you. Okay. So this is working in its own way. First question is from uh, John Meggs. It's a question about how enslaved peoples um, got their accounts published. Oh, okay. That's a good one, right? Yes in a wide variety of ways. They, what most US Americans I think are familiar with is kind of the classic of an enslaved person who 
met with an abolitionist, probably a white abolitionist, who solicited their tale so they could publish it in an abolitionist work. And we have a number of those in the catalog. But it happened in all kinds of other ways as well. Um, first off, there, there aren't any abolitionist publications really until the 1780s. So everything in the catalog before that um, is, is something else. Uh, missionaries, uh, there was a, a German missionary, a German Moravian named Oldendorf who went to the Danish West Indies and spoke with, he, he was there about a year and a half and spoke with hundreds of people, most of whom were African born. Hmm. And um, he, this is a good example actually of how this project works. So he was there in the 1760s, um, spoke with hundreds of people and um, he went home and in 1777, he published a history of the mission of the Moravian mission, the Danish West Indies. But it turns out it was just an abridged edition, published it in German. Mm. Uh, there were two or three other editions of that uh, in the next two centuries. And then in 1987, I believe, a modern scholarly edition was published in English translation. And that's what most historians use whenever they work on this. But then in 2000, um, a group of scholars went into the Moravian archives and found the full manuscript. Hmm. They published everything, and it is 3,000 pages long, four very thick volumes. So that was from 2000 to 2002. So I read through the, the, the modern version, the 3,000-page version. And I found 80, I believe 80 examples that met our criteria. Hmm. So there are 80, you'll see of our 405, that's 20% are, were actually first recorded in German by this missionary and have only been made available at the beginning of this century. Um, but um, so another interesting way is, uh, from the time period, especially the first half of the 19th century, I would say the 1820s to the 1850s, uh, scientists were getting really interested, European scientists in the interior of West Africa, mm -hmm. but it wasn't safe for them to travel there or they just weren't savvy enough to know what to do. It's just a great deal of ignorance involved there in, in spite of the centuries of contact. And um, so two of them decided they would go to a safer place to talk to these Africans, and that was Brazil. Hmm. They traveled to Brazil to plantations. Um, they talked to the planters and found people who had been recently imported from um, somewhere in West Africa. And they talked to them through an interpreter. And they were, they were very interested in the details of where they came from, what village, how far away was it from the nearest river, from the sea, what, uh, tell us about your religious practices, tell us about what was the next town, and they recorded all that and published it in scientific journals, uh, some in French, one in uh, 
London, uh, the Royal Geographic Society, I believe. And then there was a German uh, missionary and linguist who in the 1850s uh, did travel, uh, especially to Sierra Leone and uh, other places in West Africa. And he talked to people. He wanted to find out about their languages. He talked to hundreds of people. And um, many of them had not been enslaved. Many of them had been enslaved and never left Africa. And many of them had been enslaved and taken in the transatlantic trade. So I focused on those, and there's several dozen of those in the, uh, in the uh, catalog. So a wide variety of ways, and, and including some manuscripts and Inquisition records and other Spanish colonial records that didn't get published until very recently. Hmm. A couple of questions here about region within the continent of Africa. Justin is interested in if there is a particular part of Africa where you see most of these narratives or most of these people coming from. And Rachel Hammer, our development officer, had a question about if, if there are any discerning details about the experiences in terms of by region. Um, have you started to think about that sort of regionality of that story? Yes, uh, a little bit. Um, and that's something that um, other people, Africanists, are working on more than I am with even more information than I have here. But I, I can see a few things going on with this collection of 400 narratives. Um, the narratives favor West Africa up to uh, moving east along the coast of West Africa toward the Bight of Biafra and, and people who came from those hinterlands. They are overrepresented, actually. I, there are quite a few in the uh, Bantu regions, uh, Angola, Congo, Venezuela, those areas. So there's some representation there, but they're underrepresented. Mm. Um, and, uh, but they're still there. Um, and some, some of, of the 405, many of them don't say much about their African heritage because they were children when they were taken. Mm. I think something like uh, 17 or 18% were less than about 12 years old or something like that. So they, they don't remember or never even knew very much. And... Uh, Sometimes, um, whoever the mediator was, the person who was taking down the narrative and, and getting it published, was not interested in the African background, which is a shame, but they just weren't. They, had, they were interested in something else, and that's what they emphasized. But still, I would say anywhere from a fourth to maybe a third of, of these 400 narratives give you some pretty good detail on where they came from, the circumstances of enslavement, um, the different parties involved, the different uh, peoples, ethnic groups, if you will, that were involved, uh, the terrible things that happened to them on, on their march to the sea. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you can get uh, narratives that were recorded by the, the geographers you really get a lot of information hmm. 
uh, they're essentially ethnographies and you can do a lot with that. So um, the fact that something like you said, 17, 18% of these are involving children that are being migrated actually anticipates a question from Dee Andrews, who thanks you for this lovely project, um, but also asks, um, if you have a sense of how many of the narrators were kidnapped as children. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that last sentence. D asks, if you have a sense of how many of the narrators in these narratives were kidnapped as children. Uh, well, uh, uh, about 17 or 18 percent. Yeah. Total, I think. I, I haven't, I need to recalculate it. I'm, but the last time I calculated it, when I had, I think, 340 or 50 narratives, that's what it was. Now we're up to 400. So within three or four percent, I, I would say that's what it was. And these were people who were children at the time they experienced the Middle Passage. Uh, they don't give their narrative until they're grown up in the Americas somewhere. Okay. Um, Eugene Prochnow asks, uh, do you have any stories of people who were enslaved to American Revolutionary War generals? Yes. Good question, Eugene. Just ran across one recently. Somebody was taken to South Carolina and he was purchased by, oh my, um, somebody from Massachusetts. I think he may have been a a, a Commodore. And it's somebody famous whose name I'll never forget. So if anybody can think of any famous Commodores from New England, probably Massachusetts, who lived after the war in South Carolina, that's probably it. There is a chat function in Zoom. You're welcome to type that if you have a <laughs> speculation and maybe we can crowdsource this. Yeah. Uh, but there, there are uh, a few examples of people who uh, were in the Continental Army. Boyer uh, Branch, or Jeffrey Brace is his European name, is an example of that. But his owner was not an officer in the Continental Army. Uh, I think there are one or two more but the one, the one striking example was in South Carolina. And um, that is a long drawn out story. And see what I can remember about it. If, if I recall, um, this individual, there was a scandal involved, I believe a murder and um, the, the Commodore or, or the general, I think it was a Commodore, didn't like it and left and, and took this African enslaved person with him and I think manumitted him in New England. He said, I don't wanna live in South Carolina anymore like this and went back to New England. Um, because this was the case where he was invited to dinner and this, young woman didn't serve them properly. Mm. And the hosts, it's terrible what happened. 
but the short of it is he killed her just mm. right in front of the general's eyes and there was a long to do about that and we just said I'm leaving. So um, Mark Valerie has a good question um, and it is an expansive one for you. How do you think that the material that you've cataloged here will change our narrative as a whole? And I'm assuming he means the narrative of the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. Well, I've, I have thought of a, a number of projects um, that I could work on articles that, uh, um, would allow me to, to see things in a different way. And I've only worked on one. I, I've got one that's going to come out hopefully this summer or maybe early autumn. And I, I always thought and, and seen examples of, of um, free or enslaved Africans, African-Americans appropriating um, enlightenment and revolutionary rhetoric for their own causes to attack slavery. And you see some of that in the literature. But when you take, it's kind of like a cohort analysis, a large body, like I said, 400 people. And I, I went through it all looking for it. And it's, it's there, people, large numbers of people who are in a position to take rhetoric and ideas of the revolution and sort of turn them on the people that had had produced them, or to universalize them is another way to put it, and to attack transatlantic slavery, it is quite striking. Hmm. Um, and what what you see is a strong African influence and component to much of what you associate with slavery in the Americas. Um, so it supports that idea. You also see just tremendous diversity in the experience of transatlantic slavery. And um, I really like, for example, Marcus Redeker's book, The Slave Ship, I teach it. Mm -hmm. But you've got to be careful with that. You, you don't want to believe that there's just one thing that happened to people. This was the slave ship experience. And um, if you read his last book on the Amistad Rebellion, you could see he's coming around on that one. He, he really, he, he journeys back to Africa and he really stresses the, the varied African backgrounds of people and, and how that influenced their lives in, uh, in, uh, in New England when all that happened with the Amistad uh, case. And uh, I, I think it's gonna make people take Africa and the African background more seriously when they say anything about slavery, especially if it involves people who weren't born in the Americas, that they, they really did experience the trade. You, mm. there, there's, there's plenty of material here to go after to find out more about who they were before they were taken over. And you, you see that the influence is in their lives. Um, incidentally, folks, I shared a link to that Redeker book in the chat function. So if you can find it, um, I encourage you to look it up. Um, this is his book on the Amistad Rebellion. 
Um, we only have time for a couple more questions. I'm afraid we won't get to everyone, but I've got a, a real weedsy question for you. Uh, this is from Michael Duffy. It's about insurance, insurance companies. Uh, and the question is, um, were these um, slave ships financed by governments or private entities? Uh, he speculates that they were insured. Do these insurance companies um, still exist? Do you know anything about that? Short answer is no. <laughs> but, uh, it's a hell of a question. But uh, insurance was involved. Um, there's the uh, at least one famous case of, uh, of the slave ship that um, murdered several people at sea uh, to try to make insurance claims from it. Uh, the 18th century, it's getting a little off topic and beyond my area of expertise and doesn't reflect the African perspective, but the 18th century was uh, the peak period of, or the rise of the slave trade, where it really took off. And it's also when insurance became extremely important in transatlantic shipping. And uh, do these companies still exist? It's a, it's a good question. Um, I don't think it would be that hard to find out really, but I imagine imagine at least a few of them do um, wouldn't surprise me so i'd like to close with a, a really wonderful expansive question from a mutual friend and colleague nicole dressler oh. uh, who thanks you for this wonderful project and hi, hi nicole uh she asks what kinds of future research projects would you like to see coming out of this rich resource oh I, I've developed a long list and I would like to do every one of them, but that's not gonna happen. Um, I'll give you just one example. Um, Nicole, who was a doctoral student of mine and she remembers taking a class on the Atlantic world. And at the beginning of the semester, we looked at first encounters literature, the European explorations of uh, Africa and, Mer and the Americas in the 15th and late 15th and 16th into the early 17th century. And there was just no African analog for that. But I was just thinking recently working with these narratives, there is. There is a first encounters literature there that one could do and one could write at least an article if, if maybe even a book if one were so inclined um, in many, many cases, you have someone telling their tale of enslavement from the interior of Africa, and they talk about the first time they saw a white person. You just take all of those together, and there's just some really interesting material there. It's a different kind of an, uh, first encounter in, in different centuries, but it's it's just an example of um, you focus on Africans and African perspectives. You start there and then go through all the mechanisms of the trade and the documentation to life enslaved in the Americas and emancipation and see what you get that way. And that's just one example. It would be at least an article that one could do on first encounters um, with, with Europeans or white people, if you will, from an African perspective. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, when is it going to be available? 
I don't have a date yet. We're <laughs> close. I've been saying this for a year and a half now, but it, 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 I think it's really true this time. We're getting close to submitting to a publisher. We think this time. Okay, excellent. And, uh, and then however long it takes after that. Um, and um, I've written a draft introduction. I'm collecting images. And um, there are going to be a lot of indexes. There are going to be a lot of front matter and back matter in this project. And we still have to put that together. But we have finished as of, I think, in early March, early to mid-March, I finished my basic search for narratives. I'm not really looking anymore. One or two have fallen into my lap since then. But I, I had this research plan of everything we had to, to do to go out and find these things. And that's done. And Keith is still working on the imprint histories which is just a massive project. That's uh, just amazing what he's doing. And this will be, a, I hope, a bibliographer's dream when it comes out, or a cataloger's dream. Of, uh, um, he's the expert, expert on that. I am not. Um, and uh, so I don't know if all goes well, maybe next year sometime, hopefully. Great. Well, um, as soon as it's available, we're going to invite you back. We're going to want to dig into it, and I'll be nudging you to get that digital edition up and available for the rest of us schmucks. I hope I can give a live talk in the library company. It's one of my favorite places in the world to give a talk, actually. I've done it twice, I think. Mean. Yeah. Well, our door is always open. Well, not right now, but it will be. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's hope that we're out of this mess long before this book comes out yeah <laughs> well uh fortunately we have academic publishing on our side yes moving along at its traditional pace thank you so much aaron really okay. appreciate thank it. you thanks for having me and um for the rest of you i hope you'll join us again next week um we have a wonderful presentation from etta madden who's going to be sharing her research into mediterranean quarantine um and she's going to be looking at one of america's first female correspondents Anne hampton brewster uh so that is next thursday seven o'clock in my living room bring your drinks put your feet up i won't judge you if you're wearing slippers that is uh the virtue of a zoom uh talk so thank you all for joining us today and i'm apologetic to all of those who we couldn't get to your questions but i will continue to do my best to make time for that in the future Thank you all.